You are listening to a short cast from the London School of Economics and Political Science as part of our Shaping the Post-Covid World series, a digested version of our live online public events. How Much Is Your Health Worth was recorded on the 17th of March 2021. A full version of this event is available to download via the LSE Events website or from your usual podcast provider. Welcome everyone to LSE for this online event. My name is Minoush Shafiq and I'm the Director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And I'm very pleased to be here with this incredible panel to discuss global health and economics. The COVID-19 pandemic has posed huge challenges to all sectors of society and underscored the centrality of human health and well-being to the survival of our economies and societies. In the beginning, people talked about the trade-off between lives and livelihoods, but it became quickly apparent that the two were inextricably intertwined. The pandemic has also exposed huge social disparities and inequities across the world by race, by gender, by economic circumstances, and highlighted the need for global solidarity and multilateralism to get a good response to this crisis, although arguably we've had too little of that multilateralism in this crisis. Today's discussion will explore the human and economic value of health in the era of COVID-19, the need to invest in a wide range of essential sectors, from preparedness and universal health coverage to equitable delivery of vaccines in order to enable everyone to achieve the highest levels of health and well-being, and also for our economies to thrive. We are incredibly lucky today to have Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, who is the Director General of the World Health Organization. He started his job in May of 2017 and has been in more or less nonstop crisis management mode since then, starting with Ebola. And then I think being the first WHO Director General to preside over a truly global pandemic. He is joined by Professor Mariana Mazzucato, who is Professor of Economics of Innovation and Public Value at University College London, where she's the founding director of the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. We're also joined by our own Claire Wenham, who is Assistant Professor of Global Health Policy at the LSE. She specializes in global health security, the politics and policy of pandemic preparedness and outbreak response, and has worked on an array of pandemics ranging from influenza, Ebola, and Zika. Dr. Tedros, over to you. Baroness Minush, and thank you for hosting this event today, and it's a great honor to join you. I don't need to tell you that COVID-19 is an unprecedented global crisis that has shaken the foundations of social, political, and economic security. The pandemic has exposed and exploited the gaps in our health systems and the inequalities of our societies. It has overwhelmed health systems in even the world's strongest economies. In some public debate, the response to the pandemic has been framed as the choice between health and the economy. But that's a false choice. 
we do not have to choose between lives and livelihoods. They always go together. For years, WHO has been trying to make the economy case for investing in health. And the pandemic has made the case all too clearly. Health and the economy, development and stability are integrated and interdependent. When people are healthy, they can learn, earn, and innovate. When people are sick, the whole of society suffers. A major health emergency can derail a society and an economy. We have seen that. People and communities who are already vulnerable suffer the most. But investments in health systems don't just prevent damage. They can also boost the economy. For example, the UN Commission on Health, Employment and Economic Growth has projected the creation of about 40 million new health sector jobs by 2030 globally. This is critical for health but also means that more people will receive a regular salary. And because women make up 70% of the global health workforce, jobs for health workers are also an investment in gender equality. However, not all investments in health are created equal. And how countries finance health can also have implications beyond the health sector. For example, linking health insurance to employment can cause significant inequalities in societies with a large informal sector, or when a sudden economic downturn causes job losses, as we have seen with COVID-19. But the economics of health go far beyond the health system itself. In fact, the most cost-effective investments in health are those that prevent or delay people needing to use the health system by addressing the reasons people get sick and die. In the food they eat, the water they drink, the air they breathe, and the conditions in which they live and work. As you know, countries spend billions treating lung cancer instead of stopping the scourge of tobacco, treating obesity, diabetes, and heart disease instead of promoting healthy diets, treating injuries instead of making roads safer, treating depression instead of promoting mental health, and responding to outbreaks instead of investing in preparedness. We need to make different choices. Addressing the key public health challenges of today and the coming years requires that we reach beyond the health sector to tackle the social, economic, and commercial determinants of health. 
We know, for example, that taxes on tobacco help to reduce consumption, and similar approaches are needed to address the health effects of alcohol, sugar, and fossil fuels. So we don't just need more investment in public health. We must also rethink how we value health. The time has come for a new narrative that sees health and health systems not as costs, but investments that are the foundation of productive, resilient, and stable economies. And we need to elevate health as a social goal, making it a core objective of economic policies. That's why WHO is establishing a new Council on the Economics of Health for All, chaired by my good friend, Professor Mariana Mazzucato, to focus on the links between health and sustainable, inclusive, and innovation-led economic growth. So thank you so much, grazie mille, Mariana, for agreeing to chair the Council, and I look forward to our work together. My, friend, <clears throat> my friends, your partnership is essential, not only for defeating this pandemic, but for building the healthier, safer, and fairer world we all want. Thank you so much, Dr. Tadros. You've got us off to a great start. Let me turn uh, now to Mariana and Claire and ask you both, from your perspective, can we put a value on health and should we? And how, is, how important is the connection between the health of individuals and communities and that of the economy as a whole, from the cost of delivering care to return on investment in health? Uh, maybe I'll start with Mariana and then turn to Claire. Sure. It's a great question. And I think, you know, it has been asked. And I think the problem is how it's been asked and then how it's been answered. We need to change that. So, for example, you will have had many people say, of course, we need to be investing in health. And that's good for the economy. What we're trying to do in the council is to reverse that. So we want health for all. And then we backtrack, what does it mean for the economy? What does it mean for how we value healthcare exactly as Dr. Tedros was saying as an investment and not as a cost. But that also requires accounting for it in GDP, not just literally in terms of the expenditure, the cost of the nurses, the hospitals and the doctors, but also the value of what's actually created. Because even with a given amount of money, it depends how we're resourcing it, how we're imagining it, the actual effect that it has in society. If we don't have a way to capture that, then by definition, we will only have the input measure. And you'll know that productivity is output per input. If we only have the, the cost, by definition, it gets talked about just as an expenditure. But the other issue is, especially in health, but this is also true in other areas, value is actually collectively created, right? So how do we actually value, for example, the public contribution to the vaccines, to all the different therapies? Unfortunately, we don't have a pricing model, right, that has actually been able to capture that. So value-based pricing, which is the model that we use to... Um, put prices on drugs doesn't actually take into account the, the billions that are spent on, you know, remdesivir now, a therapy for, uh, 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 for COVID, where the price set by Gilead 
doesn't take into account the public contribution. We had this with uh, sofosbuvir, um, another drug which had you know a billion spent by the public sector and then was being sold for over eighty thousand for a twelve week dosage. So both in terms of the pricing, in terms of how we govern the intellectual property rights, all of this in the end is also about how we think about value as collectively created. But just coming back quickly to that first point, the point is not invest in health because it's good for the economy. It's invest in health for all because it is an objective good in and of itself, and then backtrack on what it actually means for all these other questions about financing, about the structure of public-private partnerships, about how we account for it in GDP, and so on. So we really need to talk about it as an objective in and of itself, independent of the economy, and then make sure that we actually structure the economy in order to deliver it. Claire? Um, thanks. And, and just to say, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here with such an esteemed panel, but with a big caveat, which is I'm not an economist. So I'm going to come at this from a slightly different perspective. And I think when we think about the value of health and um, picking up on some of the things that Dr. Tedros has mentioned about the, the healthcare workforce, we need to think about a care economy. And I think we have to recognize an economy which you know, puts value on the unseen and the invisible labor, which often happens in healthcare systems, in homes, and which really COVID has exposed uh, and shown quite how much of this goes on, which is unrecognized. So, for example, we know that there's a shortfall of healthcare workers. And so a good investment would be to invest in them. It's going to be, you know, 18 million uh, shortfall by 2030. And so we need an investment both to ensure that that those those people are there to provide health for all, but also then there's the surge capacity at a time of crisis now. And particularly people like community healthcare workers, the most undervalued, underpaid uh, people in in our healthcare systems, and try and find some way of attributing you know, monetary or other value to the work that they do. And this extends not just to healthcare, but to social care, childcare. And it's not just good for well-being, right? It's not just going to give us a, a healthier, happier society if we're all cared for and know that there is that support. But we also know that there are economic outputs from this. You know, it create if you, if you invest in the care sector, you see increased jobs, particularly for women and ethnic minorities who often perform this, this labor. But there's also a multiplier effect. Some recent research from the US has shown that, you know, if you pay healthcare workers better, they will then invest that money, you know, elsewhere in the economy and create jobs elsewhere. And this research has also shown it has actually a bigger stimulus effect investing in the care sector than it does in the construction industry, which is often what's invested in in the wake of of crises. And so we need to recognize this and try and think of ways to incorporate this care-based thinking and, you know, recognize that those people who we've deemed to be essential during this crisis are the backbone of our healthcare system. And it's also not just the, the paid work in our healthcare system, but we need to recognize all the unpaid care that goes on. And this has, again, been massively exposed in the coronavirus crisis. Uh, The UN last year estimated that it was 2.35% of total GDP globally, the equivalent of $1.5 trillion, which is done uh, just in the unpaid healthcare sector. It goes up to 11 trillion if you include all unpaid care in the, the kind of care sector more broadly. And we know that this, again, is is just we need to think more holistically about how to recognize this, how to ensure that there are social protections in place, because ultimately COVID has has visibilized this unpaid 
care burden. And, you know, we've seen that when crisis hits, the economy has stalled because parents and carers have had to be at home being parents and carers because the paid role that they've been paying for for this service isn't available anymore. And so we need to find a way in the way we conceptualize, um, you know, economics and health to kind of consider this human element. And I think this is going to become more important as we go forward with our aging populations who are going to need, you know, even more care. And where's that going to come from and how are we going to pay for it? Do you see the COVID crisis catalyzing universal healthcare reforms in other countries? And if so, where? Honestly, my answer is I hope so. Uh, I have a real fear that because of the way that we've seen COVID roll out in places like Europe, in places like the UK, which have really strong healthcare systems, I really fear that this might be used as a excuse not to invest, that, you know, health, even, even the strongest NHS couldn't cope. And I think that that misses the key point there, which is the system could have coped had political leadership allowed it to and had decision making happened at the right time. But I worry in the fullness of time, those things might get blurred. So I think you know, when we talk about this, we need to make sure we separate those things. That actually, we would be in a lot worse position here in the UK if we didn't have UHC. Look at the US, for example. And, you know, and that actually the problem wasn't the problem wasn't the system. It was the decision making at, at which affected the system. Uh, I hope that you know that won't that will get that won't get lost, and I hope that we will see greater investment in UHC and in preventative healthcare. I mean, in, in response to the last question that the students asked, I mean, we know that all the investments in public health that have been missing over the last decade in many countries as a result of austerity are, you know, investment in tobacco control, obesity control, uh, alcohol control. These are all things that that are comorbidities for responding to the, you know, for COVID, right? The people who are dying of COVID are people who have other health issues. And so we need to make sure we can tackle those because if we have a healthier society, we'll, we won't face the severe burden of ill health of the worst effects of future pandemics. So in answer to the question, I really hope so. I have some fears, but I hope that there's a, a possibility. And I think you know, Dr. Tedros has been doing this for many years, trying to synergize the link between UHC and global health security. And I think this is the time to catalyze upon that. It just brings me to draw this to a close. And I wanted to thank our panelists, uh, Dr. Tedros, Claire Wenham, Mariana Mazzucato, for this uh, really uh, excellent conversation. I also wanted to thank our audience for, for all of the great questions and invite everyone to come back for more LSE events. Uh, you will always learn something and they're always interesting. Thank you again. And to all of you, stay safe and goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. You can find our latest events via our Twitter at LSE Public Events and on our Facebook page at LSEPS. Alternatively, you can sign up to our newsletter via our website www.lse.ac.uk stroke events.